There's a group of people based in Chicago called the Extraordinary Lutheran Ministries. I met them leading a retreat. These days, they support LGBTQ plus seminarians and clergy in all kinds of ways. When they started in 1990, the Lutheran Church required that queer clergy be celibate. Extraordinary Lutheran Ministries began and maintained a process of ordination for queer people who were otherwise banned from serving. Extraordinary in this context means that old sense, you know, like specially convened for a particular function. When they began ordaining people, Extraordinary Lutheran Ministries had a few questions to answer as far as some people were concerned. But one stands out. By what authority are these people ordained? It, that seems like maybe it's a nicer reframing of some people asking, what do you think you're doing? By what authority do these, are these people ordained? And actually, it's not the question that stands out to me. It's the answer. By what authority? We borrow our authority from the future. We borrow our authority from the future a time when Extraordinary Lutheran Ministries assumed the wider Lutheran Church would have changed its policy to a more equitable one, a time when ELM believed the broader church would correct its historic injustice, a real time in the future with real authority that provided real hope to people living in a present without those policies, without that justice, without that public recognition. Last weekend, I was with dear friends, my closest friends, uh, and we went to New York City. I was so grateful to Vince and to y'all for that time away. And on Sunday afternoon, we had just a few hours left in the city, and the three of us wandered around in the drizzle, and we happened by the Stonewall Inn. Do you want to just go in and have a beer, one of the guys asked. Like, yes, I do. And it turned out that the bar was closed for a private event, which was like, ah, the March of Progress. So I just took pictures of my friends in front of the National Monument, and they took a picture of me leaning against the bar under all the neon and pride flags. And while we stood there, another trio of younger people walked by. Oh, one said, this place was one of the answers to final jeopardy. And I had like two simultaneous thoughts. One was like, that's your point of reference for the stone wall? And my other thought was like, that's not a hard enough question for final jeopardy. Stonewall, as you may know from Jeopardy or just from living in the world, is the Greenwich Village gay dive bar where on June 28, 1969, the people had had enough. The Stonewall, like a lot of gay bars, was barely legal. Gay bars were systematically denied the right to liquor licenses, which then gave the police an excuse to raid them regularly, like very regularly, and seize what liquor was there. And that was a good setup for organized crime to get involved. And so the mafia who often ran the bars would pay off the police, so it was a good deal for the police. And the police would often arrest gay patrons for like disturbing the peace or for not having at least three pieces of clothing that were allegedly appropriate for the sex they were assigned at birth. So the people who hung out at the Stonewall were the marginalized of the marginalized, at least lots of them were. Underage folks, drag performers, sex workers, unhoused people, people of color. A place, wrote one journalist, that catered largely to a group of people who are not welcome in or cannot afford other places of homosexual gathering. And that night was like a lot of other nights before. 
18-year-old Mark Siegel saw the flashing lights and asked other people what was happening. Oh, we're being raided. They were like very nonchalant about it, he said. They were just used to it, he said, because that was part of what life was like for gay people at that point. And Sylvia Rivera, the trans activist, said the same thing. This is what we learned to live with at the time. We had to live with it. We had to live with it, she said, until that day. But she said that day, everything just, and she snapped. I know I do it a lot, but she did, clicked. It just clicked. When the p police put the people out of the bar, just very nicely put you out the door, Sylvia said. And I found out from reading that she very often used the phrase very nicely to mean anything but. When the police very nicely put the people out and the people were standing across the street, all of a sudden you just feel this. Everybody's looking at each other. Why do we have to keep constantly putting up with this? But why, she said, but why? You just get tired of being pushed around, Sylvia said later. The movement had been taking shape for a while though, years before the people poured out into the streets. And all that time, the authorities had been taking note, worried about what it would mean for society and for public safety and for politics. Mostly, the movement took, part in, took place in private gatherings, in people's homes. But as it gathered steam, there were more and larger gatherings right out in the open, out in open fields, out along the Sea of Galilee. Thousands gathered once on a mount. And before that, for decades, people had lived under the oppression of the Roman government. And now, one Sunday morning in the week leading up to Passover, something just clicked. Jesus rode toward Jerusalem from maybe a mile away. And his disciples and other followers were with him. And his people were the poor, the sick, the scammers, the sex workers, the women. And as he got closer to the city, people kept taking off their cloaks and laying them on the road in front of him, carpeting the way for the colt he rode. In all versions of this story, except the one I asked Hannah to read this morning, they also lay down palm branches. Not in the one we read, but in all the other ones. Eventually, there was a multitude of disciples, and they began to praise God, saying again everywhere, but in our version, Hosanna, save us. And the authorities didn't like it at all. The Pharisees told Jesus to tell them to stop, but it was too late. The cat was out of the bag. Everyone in the crowd felt that we were never going back, said Michael Fader, who was there that night at Stonewall. The bottom line was we weren't going to go away, and we didn't. So much organizing and activism had already happened before that night at Stonewall, and that night at Stonewall was not planned. It wasn't organized or st strategic. It was just an organic moment when everything clicked. It launched several nights of riots, and while that first night there were maybe 100, 150 people who stayed and fought with the police, they threw pocket change at first to symbolize the payoff the cops took, and then larger objects and the Molotov cocktails. Over the next few days, a campaign of street chalking turned out thousands who gathered each night to taunt and harass the police, or at least that's how the police experienced it. This is not my kind of action. Like, I'm not comfortable in a crowd. Maybe 18-year-old Mark Siegel and I have that in common. When he was in his 60s reflecting back on that night, he reported that his total action, lock, stock, and barrel, was chalking streets and sidewalks. He followed instructions from older, more experienced activists, and he said he would have been too scared to fight. Me too. But all that chalking turned out the crowds. 
And those riots, that action at Stonewall, they weren't the point and they weren't the solution. There were decades yet to come toward full protection and inclusion, anti-discrimination laws, marriage equality, the right to serve in the military, work that is not done, work that is actively being undone right now. But that night in June, when the people were, for some reason, after all those years, after all those nights, freed and compelled to act, it was a promise that more was possible, that more was coming. The Gay Liberation Front was born directly from those days, and those days, the people took action with authority that they had borrowed from the future. When Christianity was still an underground grassroots movement, it was also of, for, and by the marginalized. Gender minorities, enslaved people, poor people, that multitude that poured out into the streets, tearing off their cloaks to throw down on the road, they weren't mostly the Jerusalem elite. They'd been waiting for deliverance from Rome, deliverance um, from God, their savior from the promised one sent in the name of the Lord. And it's true now, and starting a long time ago, that that grassroots movement has been co-opted by Christian nationalists, by wealthy and powerful people. But the work of deliverance that that Palm Sunday mob had been waiting for is ongoing, still necessary, and we're still called into it. We are still called, following Jesus, to proclaim good news to the poor, release to the captives, sight for the blinded, and to let the oppressed go free. When extraordinary Lutheran ministries started, the core of their mission was to equip, empower, and enable all people to live into their calls, even and especially when that meant acting outside of church law. And still today, their mission says that they are freed and compelled by the gospel of Jesus Christ to envision a church where all can serve God according to their call. Some to preach, some to riot, some presumably to chalk sidewalks. Sometimes freedom comes to us before others are ready to grant it to us. Something just clicks and we've had enough, or for some reason right then we're freed and compelled to take action, or to stop taking action, to quit, or to pour out into the streets something that isn't like us at all, frankly. It wells up in us individually or collectively, and somehow we're freed from what has bound us up, released from all the people and laws and inhibitions that have held us captive. Sometimes it's such good news that we're compelled to act before the world is ready to change. But in a funny way, this is the opposite of what I normally think. That present reality of oppression cannot shake the hope of a future reality. My friend Eric is the one who introduced me to Extraordinary Lutheran Ministries. He's an incredibly gifted preacher and pastor. And he felt called from the time he was in junior high to ministry. And then when he came out, he figured that was all over. And then of all people, his mom told him about ELM. And hearing about those extraordinary ordinations, he felt hope, grounded in people who were able to see the future as it could be. And Eric borrowed on the authority of that future. That's hope. It's real, and it has power. The pride movement has been co-opted, too, as you will hear at least as often as every June. 
like when vodka ads feature the pride flag or when Chase Bank has a float in the parade or when politicians queue up to ride their open cars down the route, maybe when it's become a Jeopardy answer, maybe when it's become a photo op. But that doesn't mean that that fight is over either. You know it's not. Trans kids need safe schools. Trans people need good medical coverage. All people need the freedom to live into their fullest, truest selves. I was struck this week while I did this deep dive by how many of those people at Stonewall were freed and compelled to action, not just by their own anger, not just by their own desire for freedom, but also by the inspiration of and needs of other communities. Sylvia Rivera said that the people at gay bars, especially the Stonewall, were involved in other movements. And everybody there was like, all right, we just got to do our thing. We're going to go for it. They were equipped for the work. And, and Mark Siegel, that 18-year-old, said, you got to remember, it was the counterculture 1960s. There was women's liberation and black liberation. It was like the high benchmark for the civil rights movement all at one time. He thought African Americans can fight for their rights, Latinos can fight for their rights, women can fight for their rights. What about us? And he said, I think it was all of that in a second, an instant maybe. I decided that that's what I'd be doing for the rest of my life. And he has. Our freedom is bound up in each other's freedom. When I was still living with my parents, I watched this old holiday movie where a gay character has this found family that feels more like home to him than his biological family. I love my biological family. But there was something of a promise in that movie made to me that I could have a family that recognized me for who I am and how I am. I saw it probably 20 four years ago for the first time. So last weekend, I was walking around in New York with my family, these two guys who I've known now for 15 years. And we went to see a show on Saturday night to celebrate one of their birthdays. And on the way, this um, New York City ambulance went by. And it reminded me of a video I saw at the very beginning of the pandemic, a woman practicing this beautiful Broadway song, driving around in her car. And an ambulance came by, and the siren was in the cadence and the key of the song. And it had kicked up such yearning in me at the beginning of the pandemic for this city that isn't mine, that I love for music and art and theater, and I thought many times during the pandemic, when will I go back to New York? I can't imagine it. And last weekend, there I was, with my found family, walking around on the way to a Broadway show, stopping by the Stonewall. And it was like the hope of the future that I had had was now the present. And I was grounded in it. I was right to believe in it. It had authority. We can build it, with or without permission, at a time when everything just clicks. <laughs>